Today's sermon text is Romans 1, 16 through 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in, their, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Amen. Um. So again, we're in this really easy text this morning. Um, uh, a few folks have asked me, so why, why Romans 1? And then in response to last week's message, why are you talking about homosexuality during Lent? And um, the reason we are taking vignettes of Romans 1, of, of, sorry, the book of Romans, is... Um, we feel that Romans has a lot of text that helps us, if we open our hearts to it, to bring us to the end of ourselves, to show us our inadequacy, to show us how we really are in God's eyes. And all that is not just to leave us feeling bad about ourselves, but it's to leave us in a place where we know that we need Jesus and we reach for him and long for him because we really, really need Jesus. That's what Lent is all about, a season of, the season of Lent. It's to prepare our hearts 
as we anticipate Easter Sunday when we remember and celebrate and honor the resurrection of Jesus and also anticipate our own resurrection one day when Jesus returns physically, visibly, in all of his glory. Um, But because Romans 1 deals with a particular subject, and again, homosexuality, um, that's sort of a powder keg in our culture today, in our society today. And that's not just something I can run through. I don't have the right to just run through that subject because not everyone in our society shares the same assumptions about that. Not everyone in this church shares the same assumptions about that. Um, And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. I do want to remind you that I spent the entire message last Sunday talking through the issue of homosexuality and how that squares with God's word. Uh, The difference, but things like the difference between being a practicing homosexual and same-sex attracted and loving God and living in devout uh, uh, commitment to God. There's a lot of stuff I talked about last week that I'm not going to go back and talk about again. So I strongly encourage you, if you weren't here, if you missed that, please go back and listen to that. Otherwise, you're going to miss some of the context of this message. Um, Many of you, most of you, I think were here though, and so I'm going to carry on with part two of last week's message. As I mentioned already, the issue of homosexuality that Romans 1 raises is a powder keg in our culture. But there's a silver lining. This gives us an opportunity as the church to respond better, better. Um, The church has an opportunity. When I say the church, I don't mean our church. I mean all churches. All churches who follow Jesus have an opportunity to change our posture or alter our posture so that we respond and act with compassion toward the gay community. And sadly, that is something that has been rare in the church. It's really sad. Um, Jesus was not afraid to touch and to love and to serve the people that society deemed the worst, nor should the church today. Um, Of course, not everyone is going to take this opportunity. Um, And this leads to a threat that I think a lot of churches feel, which is why some people do not opt for peacemaking and for love, but rather for defensiveness and sometimes even um, meanness. The church has been in our society today submerged under the tidal wave of cultural assumptions that we have to respond to. The cultural assumptions that are beginning to choke us are things such as this. That orthodox teaching on the subject of homosexuality is antiquated, outmoded, bigoted, and even wrong. Some even go as far as to say that people who have an orthodox view on the subject of homosexuality, that it is sin, and that, it, that, is, our, that is our view, and I want to be very careful about that. There is a difference between, again, the practice of homosexuality and struggling with a same-sex attraction. There's a big difference. There are people among us who seek to live devout lives unto Jesus who struggle with same-sex attraction. 
The Bible's condemnation of homosexuality is a condemnation of the practice of homosexuality, not of being same-sex. There is no sin that we can struggle with that's worse than the other. Every one of us in this room struggles with something. Every one of us does. Strugglers are welcome into the kingdom of God. And so for those of you who are hearing this and you're thinking, man, I've never heard anything like that before. I want to submit to you two books that I think would really help you. Uh, Both of them are by the same author named Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill is a wonderful theologian, wonderful writer, and also struggles with same-sex attraction. He lives um, a devout life. He is single. He restrains from any kind of sexual intimacy. And he wrote his first book, which is more of a memoir, um, on his own struggles with how to square homosexuality with God's word. And the name of his book is called Washed and Waiting. Washed and Waiting. It is a fantastic book. Could not more highly commend it to you. The second book by him as well is called Spiritual Friendship. In Spiritual Friendship, he challenges the church to really be the church, especially to people among us who struggle with same-sex attraction, who may never marry, who may never have children, who may never know the joy of running downstairs on Christmas morning and watching their kids open gifts, who will never know that, if, you're, if you believe in that kind of thing, um, like I do. So um, he wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship. And in this book, it's one of the most challenging books for me and my own relationship with God I've read in recent years. And he challenges the church to be not just a, quote, safe place for people who struggle with same-sex attraction, but to be a home, to be a family in every sense of the word, opening our extra bedroom to people and allowing them to eat with us at our dinner table and be a part of our family. I think that's really necessary. Um, So there's an opportunity, but there's also a threat because there are people who say that people who have an orthodox view of homosexuality are no different than people who used to lynch black people 30 and 40 years ago. No different. That's harsh. But this is the tidal wave of new thinking that's beginning to storm the shores of the church. Even within the church, there are those who feel that this is an issue that is a non-essential. We can agree to disagree about it that it's silly to be heavy-handed or judgmental or even convictional. Convictional. Um, We shouldn't be judgmental, but we should be convictional. And there's a difference. They're not the same. And so, after that very simple introduction, I'm going to go ahead and get into the text this morning. Um, I want to look at verse 18. 18 through 24, and I want to pick out a few ideas to help frame where we're going for the rest of the message today. Again, I gave more of a theology last week on where we are as a church on this and why we hold to an orthodox view of this. If you want to know what we are, what we believe, why we believe it, 
Again, I challenge you to listen to last week's message. But I also challenge you to adopt a posture of compassion and love toward people in the LGBTQ community. Without apology. With deep conviction. Love them. Serve them. Invite them to your dinner table. If you don't know them, you need to. You need to. They are God's people, created in God's image. And they need the gospel as much as you and I need the gospel before we came to Jesus. We all are naked and, like the Bible says, deserving of death, all of us, if we do not have Jesus. All of us. So, a few things here. Talking about the wrath of God. Another, again, another easy subject. Um, um, what can be known about God, Paul says in verse 19, is plain to them. He's talking about people who are deserving of judgment. The wrath of God. And man, that's not a, that's not a seeker-friendly phrase, the wrath of God. Um, but it's in the scriptures and we've got to face it. Um, what can be known about God is plain to them. Who is the them that the Bible is talking about? Every person who has ever lived from the creation to the point when Jesus returns. Every single person. There's not one person that that cannot see the evidence in nature around us that there is a God and he should be honored. And that brings up another point I want to make here. It says in verse um, 21, that the people who are deserving of the wrath of God, he doesn't go on to say, he doesn't lead off with all the stuff that he ends with. They're dishonorable. They are disobedient to parents. They are slanderers. They are murderers. He doesn't say that's why we deserve the wrath of God at the very beginning of this. Rather, he says this in verse 21, that although they knew God, knew there was a God, they did not honor him nor give thanks to him. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. I find that really interesting. That that is our indictment. That we did not honor him and we are not thankful to him. I think anybody who thinks in, in themselves, self, you're, a pretty, you're in pretty good shape. You're not a murderer. You're not a swindler. You're not this. You're not that. I want you to look at that same self and ask, Does your life honor him? Do you worship him? Are you thankful to him? And I think that really hits us in the middle of the forehead, especially in our consumeristic, materialistic culture where we have almost no needs. We have everything we want. We can get whatever we want whenever we want it. And he says that for people who don't need God. Your guilt is not that you've done really sinister things. Your guilt is that you're not thankful to him and you don't honor him. That's heavy. That's really heavy. And it says that as a result of this, they became futile in their thinking. Futile. And their foolish hearts 
were darkened. Claiming to be wise, verse 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory for the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we might laugh at that. We don't have wooden idols or shrines in our homes or living rooms or kitchens that look like creeping things or animals, but we have idols in our lives. We all have idols in our lives. Anything in our life that is ultimate, anything that we feel that we cannot live without is an idol in our life. Anything that feeds our sense of identity as opposed to Jesus is an idol in our lives. Now, I want to be really clear here. I don't want to come across as a fundamentalist today because the scriptures don't teach that the things of this world are bad. I've said many times, you can enjoy the wonderful blessings of this world. I am loving the sunshine. I am hating the pollen. I like air conditioning in my car. I like a good meal and good drink. I love good conversations late at night with good friends. I like going to Universal Studios and Disney. I like going to stuff like that. I like things in this world. I enjoy those things. I like going to the Memphis Zoo. I like um, when somebody gives me gifts. Lots of gifts. I really like that. When is Pastor Appreciation Month? I forget when that is. I really like those things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of our world. From the very beginning, God intended that we would enjoy good things. But it's when those good things become ultimate things, idolatrous things in our lives that feed our identity, that erode our honoring of God and thankfulness of God, that it becomes wrong. And so God gave them up. In verse 24, it says, Therefore, God gave them up. Their futile, their minds already became futile. And then God's response to that was to the suppressing of truth to give them to their sinfulness. Give them. You want to govern yourself? Then I will curse you with self-governance. Three times in this text, the scriptures say, and God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them what they wanted. He let them do what they wanted. They are experiencing the first salvo of the wrath of God. Three times. Again, the them that we're talking about here is all of humanity. Now, I want to say that, I want to make this point. In verses 17 through 32, what Cassandra, uh, 16 through 32, what Cassandra read, sorry, okay, she read 16 through 32. Verses 18 through 32 is God's assessment of all of humanity from the fall until the coming of Jesus. This is how God views all of humanity. All of us. This is how God sees us. This is God's assessment of every person who has ever been born and ever will be born. And God's assessment, this is his historic view of all of humanity. Now, this does not mean when it says that God gave them up to their sin... This does not mean that humanity is beyond redemption. 
This is why verses 16 and 17 are really, really, really important. Let's read those again. Verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The salvation of who? People who have suppressed the truth. People who know that there is a God. People who look at this world and this cosmos, and like me at a young age, when I was struggling with doubt whether or not there was a God, at the end of the day, it came down to this. This could not have just happened. There is a creator. Matter, energy, all of that stuff, every molecule was made by someone or something. And through the gospel, that's when I came to believe that the creator has revealed himself to humankind in the person of Jesus. I believe that with all of my heart. All of my heart. Many of you believe that as well. I can't believe that God would create all of this and then remain veiled and hidden, leaving us in a place where we're always asking that existential question, who are we? Where did we come from? Who is the creator? Is there a creator? God in his mercy throughout Human history has been what John Calvin says, giving us baby talk, giving us hints and clues and cues along the way, showing us who he is. And then, of course, all that climaxed in the revelation of Jesus. This is who God is. This is what he's all about. A meek savior who bled for us and died for us. God said, this is what I'm all about. I love you. I want to be with you. And I'll do anything to get you with me. And even though, like this text says, you deserve to die, I'm going to die in your place. Because why? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with all of humanity. Believe this, man. And I encourage you as well to hear the gospel. Jesus is Lord. And believe it. Believe it. Now, I want to take a few minutes and deal with, again, the issue of homosexuality because the text leads us here. We're led here. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he described the dishonorable passions. He says this, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And this begs the question, why is God so hard on gay people here? Why? In my opinion... And I don't think I'm reading into this. I think the whole of Romans bears this out. I don't think this is a text about how gay people are worse sinners than you and I. I don't think that's what this is saying here. For at least two reasons. Here's the first one. Remember last week, Paul had Romans 8 in mind when he wrote this. Now again, I'm going to remind you, everybody, a challenge that I've been giving has been given since before Christmas. I love to preach God's word. I love it. 
I feel so close to God when I preach. But I don't want to do this for nothing. I want me and every one of our preachers that ever gets up here to know that the work and the study that we put into these messages is connecting with you where you are. And so if I were you, this is what I would do. Even if I already knew everything the preacher was saying, here's what I would do. I would take notes. Some of you are copious note takers. I'm not saying you've got to write down every word. Write down points. Write down ideas. Write down moments when Jesus speaks to you. Write them down. Why do I want you to do this? I encourage you to do this. Because taking notes keeps your minds alert. Because if you saw the you that I saw, you would laugh right now. Because some of y'all are like this. the whole time. I could stand on my head and some of y'all would still be doing that. No. I love you all very much. I want your mind to be alert in this. God gave you your brain. Okay? The heart, the spirit is not the opposite of the brain. And so here's what I would do if I were you. I'm going to keep giving this challenge because I think this is good discipleship. Take notes and then during the week... Listen to the message again a couple of times. Not to stroke my ego, but for you to grow. Because even if I'm off or miss it sometimes, and I really hope I don't, because I've got guys around me that remind me of that, and they need to, okay? Um, but, but generally speaking, I think we're pretty straight here. You know, we're pretty on the ball. We're pretty, we, we, you know, we get good doctrine here, good teaching, stuff for you to build your lives on. Listen to the message a couple of times throughout the week. Look over your notes, and here's another thing you could do. Bible plans are great. Most of us yawn through those. Most of us are playing catch-up every day and feel guilty because we're, you know, six days behind, and I've got 14 chapters to catch up on. I'm not saying don't do your Bible plan. I'm not. But I'm in a Bible plan. But... Maybe focus on the text that was preached on Sunday and study that throughout the week. That way, God is like just, man, speaking to you. And then when you get there on Sunday morning, you're ready for the next step that we're going to take together. I think that is the best way you can approach the preaching of God's Word. I really do. And that's what I would do if I was listening. Just food for thought. I'm not going to get mad at you if you fall asleep, if you do that, or if you're not taking notes. It's all good. So they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And Paul, remember, Paul is building into Romans 8. When Paul sent the letter of Romans to the Romans, he didn't think that they would dust it off every once in a while, read a couple of verses in a Bible study, and then tuck it back away. They probably read this entire letter all in one sitting numerous times. People who were barely literate in tiny little house churches in Rome. They would read the whole thing with no children's ministry, with babies crying, making the people crazy, okay? They would do that. Now, so when he's writing Romans 1, he's not putting a period on this subject and moving on. 
He's building up to something. And Romans 8 is huge. And I want you to visit me. Go with me to Romans 8 really briefly. Romans chapter 8, verse 25. I'm sorry, not verse 25, verse 19. Romans 8, 19. And again, you've got to go back to last week to set context for this, but whatever. Okay, so verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now that word there for revealing simply means to unveil. It's the same word that Paul loves to use in the book of Romans. He uses it about the gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 17. That it reveals the righteousness of God. And then he uses it again in verse 18 and 19 when he talks about how the wrath of God is revealed. There's a lot of revealing going on. In Romans chapter 8, he says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, there's that word again, to futility. You see, humankind rejected God and embraced futile thinking. God gave them over to their futility. He gave them over to it. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. But God subjected us to stupid, crazy thinking with a hope. With a hope. What is that hope? Um, If I can find my place, I'll tell you. Verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. We are part of the creation, my friends. We are part of that. When the creation is groaning, we are also groaning. Don't just think about volcanoes that are belching lava and and smoke. Think about us when we groan every single time we suffer, we're mistreated, we're struggling with illness and sickness and disease. We are groaning for the day when we don't have to endure this anymore. All of creation is broken. All of creation is not living in the way that God intended it to live. Creation is impaired. Now check this out in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now why does he say we ourselves? Because people who follow Jesus who have the Spirit in them, we still groan. We still hurt. We still struggle with the way things are in our world. We groan. And we eagerly await our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Now, Romans 8 is big here in in this regard. He is looking to that moment when Jesus returns and we are glorified, those who follow Jesus. What does it mean when the Bible says that our bodies will be glorified? We will literally be resurrected. I've said this a bunch of times. I'm going to say it a bunch more times. You're probably going to get, you're you're probably sick of it already. You shouldn't be because it's our hope. Our destiny is not to go float 
without bodies around clouds. That is not our ultimate destiny. When Jesus returns, those who are dead in Christ will return with him and we will be resurrected with new bodies. We will have skin and we will live on a recreated earth. We will walk on the ground. We will sit in chairs. We will throw a football, maybe. I don't know if animals will be there or not. I've still not figured that out yet. That probably won't. Pig skin, you know. Anyway, so um, we'll find something to throw around. Maybe a cantaloupe, or I don't know. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do stuff. We'll have fun. We'll play sports. We will have a blast. We will worship. We will see Jesus face to face. It will be amazing. This is our future with our resurrected bodies. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And I wonder, I just wonder, if this is what Paul had in mind when he seemed to zoom in and focus on homosexuality because the world, all of the natural order is broken. And there is no more vivid picture of the broken creation, impaired, not functioning as it should, than the practice of homosexuality. I think that's what he's saying in Romans chapter 1. I think that's what he's saying. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And I wish this was an easy message to preach, but it's not. Y'all, please bear with me. So I don't think that Paul is saying that homosexuals are the worst people. I think what he's saying is this, that the practice of homosexuality is probably the most vivid example of how the world is broken. In the same way that Paul says to the Ephesians, there's no more vivid example of Jesus' love for his bride, the church, than the way that we do marriage as people. He says in the same way that we are married, husband to wife. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Uh, Wives, uh, respect your husbands. This is a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. This is why we've got to do marriage right, man. This is why we should not be flippant with our marriages as though we are the governors of our marriage and we can decide how long our marriage lasts or doesn't last. We don't get to make that call. Our marriages are a gift from God that should be a living, walking, talking picture, a parable of Jesus' love for the church. It's big. Okay, here's another reason, second reason. The second reason we know that gay people are not the worst sinners in God's eyes is because of what he says after he talks about gay people in this text. He doesn't say that God gave them over to their sin and their futility and their darkened minds and says and ends with gay people. He moves on beyond that and he says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Anybody not guilty of covetousness in here? Raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. Please, 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 please. Anybody not guilty of that? He says that people who are guilty of covetousness deserve to die. That seems crazy to me. But it's scripture. Anybody off the hook? He doesn't end 
with the practice of homosexuality. You see, homosexuality is a 30,000-foot view of humanity. And then he zooms in to each one of our backyards. And he says, let me take this to where you are right now. Covetousness. Covetous. Malice. I don't think anybody in here is not guilty of malice. They are full of envy. Anybody off the hook? Envy? And then he says murder. Strife. Strife. If God saw the way that me and Denise grew up, I would have gone to hell years ago. (laughs) She was so mean to me, and there was so much strife. (laughs) It was bad. Strife. Is lying on this? Here's of God, haughty, bustful, inventors, disobedient, foolish. I don't see lying in that one. Deceit. Yeah, I guess they, okay, all right. So. I mean, insolent, maliciousness, maliciousness, gossips, haters of God. Now, remember, haters of God isn't just like, I hate God. I don't give him thanks, and I don't honor him. It's functional hatred of God. I don't want God in my life. I want other things in my life. You may not have a clenched fist and raising your your fist to God, but it's it's one and the same, isn't it? Inventors of evil, that was what I was really good at. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, faithless, heartless, heartless, ruthless, man. Though they know God's righteous decree. That's what gets me too. Every one of us, we don't ever have to hear a Bible verse preached. We know in our hearts that we are guilty, that these things are wrong. They are broken. We know, it, we know that they are. And not only do we engage in them, but we approve of others who do them. Homosexuality isn't the height of God's indictment of humanity. Your sin and my sin is. Your sin and my sin. Let me bring us in for a landing. So this brings up the wrath of God. Okay, we are beyond the issue of homosexuality now. Again, that's a powder keg issue. Everything that I just said, I do not say flippantly. I don't want to be known as the preacher who preaches that. I don't want that. It's frightening, considering our, the way our world is now. But I've got to teach what's in the Bible. Um, I will say this again, as I said last week. There are people among us who struggle with same-sex attraction. And despite the strength of this message today, I want you to know, I genuinely care for you. I genuinely care for you. I want to be your friend. I want to walk with you in your story. And I know other people in this room would too. I want this to be a safe place for people who have come to a knowledge of the truth, who have embraced God's word as their standard for living and will join this chorus of broken people as we all try to align our lives with God's word disobedient to parents 
and everybody else. This is hard. There's two words in the New Testament that, ta- that are, refer to wrath. One is what we often think of. It's an out-of-control, impulsive, fickle, unpredictable, irrational anger. It's a rage. That's not the word that's used here for God's wrath. God's wrath here is defined by another word. And what that word means is a steady, settled, determined, abiding condition. It's a disciplined anger. It's a disciplined anger. I want you to think of Revelation chapters 15 and 16. It describes God's wrath as seven bowls. Now, there's various interpretations of this. Um, but these seven bowls of wrath, some say will be poured out on humanity at the, end of the, at the end of days. Others say are being poured out right now. But that seventh bowl is the biggie. It's God's anger that's being stored up from the moment of the fall, the fall happened until the coming of Jesus. That's a lot of wrath to be stored up. And if you read that, without really thinking about it, it could make you think, boy, God is fickle. Why is God so mad and angry about everything? Um, and my answer to that would be this. Um, doesn't God have a right to be angry if we do? We always self-justify our anger. If you knew what that person did to me, you, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't tell me to not be angry. Why doesn't God have a right to be angry? Let me tell you about God for a moment. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. God is also eternal. That means he has always been. So from the moment that the first transgression was committed, God was there. His presence was there. He witnessed it. He saw it. And every single transgression that has ever been committed since then, in the billions or trillions or however many people have lived on this earth, God has seen it and witnessed every single Everyone. Everyone. Every single injustice ever committed in human history, God witnessed. Every murder, every rape, every moment of abuse, children, women, slavery, God was there. He saw it. He was standing in the presence of that atrocity. He was there. Every lie ever told, every swindle, Every manipulative act, every ripoff, God was there. Every punch, every torture, every genocide, every humiliation suffered at the hands of the powerful, God was there. So why doesn't God have a right to be angry? God was there. God is not only eternal and omnipresent, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't just see what happens outside of us. 
He knows what's going on inside of us. So every agony that we've experienced, every sorrow, every lamentation, every despair, God felt. He is present in the deepest darkness of every single soul. Everyone. He was and is there when in our hearts our hopes were crucified. He is in the midst of every broken spirit. He also carries the angst that many of us carry because he was there when we were wounded. He hears the deafening, silent screams of every heart that writhes in solitude. No one is more empathetic to the pain of humanity than our God. And this is why the psalmist could say, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. God is present in our hell and God feels our hell. And this is why the psalmist could also say in Psalm 7, 11 through 13, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation Every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his readied bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And Paul says, In response to all of this, the wrath of God being stored up against all of us, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Here's what's amazing about the gospel. God's wrath has been stamped on every one of us, every person who's ever lived. Whether you feel guilty or not. Whether you feel wrong or not. But for those who have come to Jesus, for those who are in Christ... Even if you do feel guilty, you are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because of your faith in Jesus. The only people who can have faith in Jesus are people who see that and accept God's assessment of them. I am guilty, I am deserving of death. There is nothing I can do to pay my way. There is no amount of merit, good deeds, worship, Jesus conversations, Bible reading, prayer meetings, church attendance that can fix 
the predicament that I am because it is cosmic and it is permanent and it is irreversible unless I allow Jesus to step into my life and I follow him. God, help us. Help us. We need you. We need you. I pray that every one of us would accept that assessment of us where we are. We are broken. We need you, God. Lord, I'll admit I'm feeling a little fear right now. I feel I fear that some folks might see this as comical, stupid, hopelessly fundamentalist, fundamentalist. I feel that right now, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would bring us all to a place of faith, true faith. Bring us to a place where we truly are aware of our need of Jesus. Because you are there, Lord God, to save us. You are there.